too late world is already on fire i mean you know i was saying that from like 2018 the eastern mediterranean was on fire it's burning right africa burning everything is how do they call it tits up so welcome it's friday it's the 19th of march damn that month went real fast didn't it um, there's a lot going on, a lot of misinformation, a lot of new movements, and, you know, we haven't stopped paying attention to what's going on in the underground. Um, I think it's very important that, you know, people understand just how, how fake everything is. Both sides, the good and the bad, however you see good and bad, are both controlled by the same people. And that's what sucks. And most of them are knowingly doing it. That's what is horrible. That's the most horrible thing. It makes me sad. Very, very sad. It's kind of like, you know, yesterday, uh, most of you were really, really upset when in Telegram, I, I put that picture of that site where there's veterans for BLM. And um, I was I was just as shocked as you, but to identify a veteran or active duty member that they have oodles of biometrics, right? Oodles of facial recognition on, and they can't find them, and they're asking the public for help. Like, come on, stop, stop. Like, please, it's all a facade. It's all a joke. It's they're mocking you. <laughs> they're mocking you. They're doing all this and they're mocking you. And and everyone's just sitting there. You know, I, I've said this the, the whole point, and I said it for so many years. It's all about confusing people. It's all about them being in control. It's all about controlling the good message and the bad message. I mean, they're the counter messaging that they get the people that they throw under the bus, like Cuomo murdered people. And here they are. Yeah. Let's use the me too card. Everybody can agree with the me too card. We can't go around saying that he committed murder. We're just going to throw him under the bus like that. It's all fake. They're all doing a wonderful job keeping you distracted. You know, I hear people, what about the children? What about they say, okay, so what are you going to do about the children? Tell me when you have both the people that are supposedly pro and against in power when they're managed by the same people, how are you going to fix anything when they're still there? How are you going to fix anything when the media is not on anybody's <laughs> any, <laughs> they're not on their side? How are you going to fix it? It's like you're trying to hit a target on the other side of the planet. How are you going to do that when you still have them there? You need to take these corporations out. I mean, they just said Biden's Homeland Security guy was like suggesting that parents south of the border send their kids alone to the border. Are you kidding? Like, 
Who says that? And you're kind of thinking, this is so dumb. This is so brazen, so blatant. I mean, it, this can't be right. They're doing it on purpose. They're doing it on purpose. So you already know who, who, who's unapologetically and shamelessly, right, doing all this. Then you have the right that's reacting to all of that, right? And but they're not doing anything. They're reacting to it, right? They're they're reacting, a reaction. It's a reaction. Uh, it's a reaction. But what do the people do? Like, what do they do? Tell them what they can do. But I like that guy. I like that guy. I like that guy. I like that guy. What are we doing? A lot of people can sit down and just kind of articulate. They have all these mysterious sources, and they're going to tell you exactly what it is. All of them. I mean, right now, Rush Limbaugh is probably turning over in his grave because Barack Hussein Obama's ex-Secret Service agent is now going to be taking his slot. And then, you know, I get people saying, I don't trust you. And it's like, but he worked for Obama as a Secret Service agent. But you give him props because he's a dude. What? Because what? What is it? What is it? That's the thing. Nobody likes to talk about it. Nobody likes to talk about truth. Everybody hates truth. Truth, truth, truth. Truth calls you to the carpet. Truth puts it all out there and you can't hide. There was um, a tweet I saw someone put out. And we're going to talk about that next week. But what you are seeing is something ancient, you know, where you kind of feed the crocodile hoping that it eats you last kind of thing. This is exactly what's happening. It's, it's the most insane thing. Most insane thing. Oh, it drives me insane watching it. But we're going to talk about that um, next week. I wanted to introduce you to a little bit of history uh, in regards to Africa and their kingdoms and the fall of Rome today. And this is important because you're going to see a lot of similarities. Now, obviously, you know, I wanted to point this out. You know, um, Arabs, right? They're They're actually extremely racist to Africans. I don't know if you guys know that, but they don't, you know, because they, they have them as slaves. They still do, right? They're very racist toward Africans I mean, and Indians. Indians do that too. It, like Indians from like India, just so you know. It's like a cultural thing, right? Uh, all of them. <laughs> all of them. You know, they <laughs> and they don't like to talk about the fact that Muhammad was an African, right? He wasn't an Arab, I'm just saying. And that Islam rose up in Western Africa, in Nigeria, and Ghana. I'm just I, I'm just pointing this out, right? And there's a lot of misinformation on this. Uh, but I, I, I thought I would uh, uh, point that out today. Now, um, the reason that we're focusing on Africa is because the more you understand about that continent and the nations within it, the more you're going to understand the cultural nuances they have so you can identify why they are so important to the West and why um, what is happening now is just repercussions of not being able to keep them in the dark any longer. Uh, one thing I wanted to... Um, kind of throw out there is, 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 is a funny story. Um, I think it was like nine. No, I want to say it's maybe 2000. Yeah. Cause I was pregnant. Right. So yeah, I was, so it was like January 2000. So, um, I was in London 
and I went to go uh, to my usual spot where I would get kebabs. Um, it's like the go-to food, right? And there was a guy outside um, eating, and I just happened to strike up a conversation. I was bored, waiting. The line was huge. Best kebabs ever. And he was from Angola, and, you know, I asked him, so do you work in the area here? Like, what do you do? He's like, yeah, 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 I work for the embassy, you know. And I was like, oh, I thought I heard, you know, you speak fluent Portuguese. And he's like, yeah, we speak Portuguese and, and French, right? And so he told me something that struck me odd. I was like, um, so like, what do you, like, you're really young. You're like, what, 20? He's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm one of the diamond families. I, the diamond, I'm sorry. He's like, yeah, we, we have a lot of diamond mines in Angola. Not a lot of people know it, but, um, you know, right now we're trying to go to the courts to get um, our land back from the Portuguese and uh, the French and all these people that have laid claim because we can't even mine them to sell them uh, because they won't give it up when there were no contracts and when they had enslaved us and they pretty much stole um, the rights to it. And I was like, well, uh, if the French and the, the Portuguese aren't in Angola right now or claiming it as a territory, I don't understand why you can't mine there. I mean, they should just butt out. He goes, yeah, that's what you would think. But they made their own contracts. And apparently when we tried to get people to come and mine, no one will mine because apparently there are contracts and we're not allowed to without their permission. And I said, well, who did the contracts? He's like, I guess they did them by themselves and they keep renewing them too. And the government's not aware of it. And I thought to myself, what, what, how, how does that even happen? But then I remembered how the Turkish people, you know, from the Ottoman period had stolen things from the Greeks, remember, like the 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 marble relics, the 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 faces of the Parthenon and stuff like that, right? And then they took, they stole them, right? And then they sold them to England, and then the Greeks are like, "Yo, England, give them back." They're like, "No, we paid the Turks," but they stole them. According to law, they're not allowed to sell it, and it's been going back and forth. They're still in the Queen still owns things, so it was kind of like, hmm. There's a lot more there that we just don't get. So I think it's um, it's uh, it's quite important that we understand uh, their history of these empires, right? Uh, and that way things will make sense as they come along. Kind of like how we were talking about the dynamics in in the Mediterranean in 2018 and 2019, how we were talking about gold, how we were talking about energy, how we were talking about, hey, it's all about Idlib. And we see that the tension is still there because World War III has already started. It's just, you know, embers right now. It's just embers right now. So um, I wanted to kind of take it, uh, take it back to like core history, like understanding the fall of the Roman Empire, even though it's like, um, it's at the same time as the rise of the African empires too. Uh, so it's important that we see that. But before we do that, I just wanted to cover some current stuff. Okay. I don't like Sean Spicer and the story, right? I really don't. I don't. Um, let me see. Does it not want to be my friend? Oh, okay. That's how I have to do it. Okay. Allow. Really? 
No way. Why did I do this? Damn it. Hold on. Um, fabulous. Gosh darn it. Give me a second, guys. Why do they keep changing things up on me? I'm so tired of this. I'm really tired of this. Hold on. See if that works better. That should be good. It'd be funny if it weren't so tragic. That's right. Joe Biden is harming go. the United States with his border crisis and using our own. Okay. So I want you guys to hear the points that he's making in regards to of socialists uh, today and how, you know, it's one-sided, how they're not being fair. It's just. I want you guys to just listen to the words he's using right now. Um, this is Chris. I was going to put Sean Spicer, but I, I think this is far better. ...tax dollars to promote it. Unlike the Surrender Caucus and the GOP, I am no longer in the mood to play nice with these socialists. Being as fair to the socialists as they are to us. That's the balance we dispense in tonight's preamble. We start in Georgia. Police arrested a 21-year-old Georgia man on Tuesday after investigators said he opened fire at three separate Metro Atlanta spas, killing eight people and injuring one other. Okay, so listen to what he shot fires at. Three Metro Atlanta spas, right? All of them were Asian. Most of them were women. The shooter confessed he was driven by what he called a sex addiction. That's what drove him to seek out these facilities. But despite this, socialist Democrats started to blame people like me and President Trump because some of the victims happened to be of Asian descent. Leftist Congressman Ted Liu chimed in on Twitter, the former President used racist phrases he wrote, like Kung Flu, that inflamed discrimination against the Asian American community. Officials that continue to use ethnic identifiers in describing the virus are part of the problem. Please instead be part of the solution, hashtag stop Asian hate, he wrote. Now, Mr. Liu, this man, is a special kind of stupid. First, the Kung Flu was a derivative of the martial arts discipline known as Kung Fu. It's practiced by many races all over the globe. Perhaps Mr. Liu can actually identify what race Kung Fu is. It wasn't just Liu who tried to make absurd claims about Trump. Joe Biden's spokesperson also chimed in on this. I think there's no question that uh, some of the damaging rhetoric uh, that we saw uh, during the prior administration, uh, blaming, uh, you know, calling COVID, uh, you know, the Wuhan virus or other things, um, uh, led to, um, you know, um, perceptions of the Asian American community that are inaccurate, unfair, uh, have uh, raised, um, you know, threatening, uh, have, has elevated threats against uh, Asian Americans. And we're seeing that uh, around the country. Mm -hmm. One side note here, the Chris Alcedo show has been using the term China virus long before President Trump started using it. I'm going to be as fair to Ted Lieu and Biden's spokesperson as they are to me, to Trump and other conservatives. What's really at play here is that Lou and Saki and virtually the entirety of the Socialist Democrat Party are protecting communist China. They're trying to say that our criticism of America's enemy is somehow responsible for an increase in violence against Asian Americans. Actually, Nancy Pelosi, remember, I said this in February of 2020, 
her walk down in San Francisco. Oh, you should come to Chinatown. No worries about coronavirus. Don't hate the Chinese. Look at me. Hang out and trying to find out where we have one of the biggest, what is it, fortune cookie factories, right, that she was, like, getting a tour of. And if you know, the majority of the Asian crime is actually 80% Black Lives Matter people beat up on uh, Asian Americans. And they don't like Asian Americans. They've excluded them as minorities because, you know, they're smart and they get their jobs, right? So nobody likes them. But lo and behold, in the back channels, I don't know if any of you caught my stereo chat with Patrick Berge, but we were talking about, you know, hooker Asian lives matter. That's like their new, uh, you know, uh, spiel that sex workers that are Asian, their lives matter because all the people he shot up were in spas. You know what that means, right? Okay. Massages, special ones. So we have a problem with human trafficking and they're trying to blanket it right into supporting them. This is insane. Um, maybe, you know, one of the girls laughed at this guy and <laughs> totally not a white supremacist. He's, I can guarantee you he's probably in one of those meetings and um, I'm going to hit up our little infiltrators in these underground movements in Georgia, probably find him there. And if you troll this Facebook, you'd probably see that he was, you know, BLM bending his knee and sh ashamed of his color, you know, you know, the way it is, because, you know, you can't fix the pigmentation of your skin so you should apologize for that for the rest of your life you know if you're white if you're not white if you're green if you're anything that they don't support at that time you know you should be ashamed of yourself which reminds me the democrat party is all about minorities and poverty right well then why are they raising taxes health care costs gas prices it's like they don't want the minorities to be able to drive to rent a home buy a home right <laughs> nothing. They don't want them to do anything. So they're voting for people that are coming in. Now, uh, I'll tell you what, when I was talking to someone and I was like, you know, I was so blessed. I get to buy a Tesla. I'm glad. And it, totally as liberal as they can come, right? As liberal as they could come. They're looking at me in the face. And, uh, you know, I was just checking out. I was like, good thing. I won't have to do gas anymore. They were like, yeah, gas is expensive. I was like, yeah, people keep voting for establishment people. I mean, yeah, people may not have liked Trump, but we had low gas, low healthcare costs, right? Everything was great. You put in establishment, you won't be able to drive. And the person was like, I actually regret voting for Biden and Harris because they're just the same. And I was like, yeah. He, and, and <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't like Trump, but America was a lot better before COVID with him. And it's like, yes, yes, my friend, yes, yes, wake up. Look at the difference between establishment and non-establishment. Look at the difference between controlled opposition and the actual evil. Because every single time, they're the uniparty, they're the same thing across the board. Where are your senators that claim that they're pro-America? Where are your Congress people that are claiming that they're pro-America? They're nowhere. They're both on each side. Pretending to be on the other side. Oh my gosh. It's just so bad. But now... You're not going to be allowed to talk about China because it's racist. See how they do that? They're going to psyop you to the point where you're just like, can't talk about China taking over our power because that's Asian lives matter. Can't talk about China 
raping our country with tariffs because Asian lives matter. But then they're going to be beating them up for jobs, right? They hate them. They hate them. They're all doctors. They're all scientists. They take our spot. That's exactly what they say. And that's because culturally they believe in academics. Maybe if you change your family culture by, you know, focusing on academics and striving to be amazing, you know, you would be equally opportuned. You can't sit there and say, I want that spot in college when, when you don't have the grades, when you're busy thugging around, when you're busy going to the mall and twirling your hair, you can't complain because you can't get that spot in college or that job. I mean, it's just plain and simple. This is the land of opportunity. As much work as you do is what you get in reward. I mean, here they are guys, the emails that they exchange is just crazy. I, I'm going to put it in an article this weekend. There's emails on the underground BLM where they're like, let's find talking points because sex workers lives matter too. And it's like most of these people that come from Asian nations that are sex workers are sex are forced to be in sex work. They don't want to. Okay. They don't want to. Their passports are taken from them and they are forced to do these things. And yet here they are protecting us from calling that crap out because their lives matter. That's the thing. If I was Chinese, Korean, Filipino, whatever bucket they want to throw people in, right? If I was that, I would, I would be so upset that they just assume that the Asian lives matter because they're sex workers. I would be insulted, right? Knowing exactly what sex work and being Asian means, right? Knowing that. So it's, 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 these socialists are insane. They're insane. They're insane. They're saying, you know, the, the, the sex worker lives of Asians matter. They're being very specific to it as well. When they know full well, our target is the communists. That's who Saki and Lu are trying to protect. Any five-year-old knows that China is a country, not a race. Any intelligent person knows that Wuhan is a city, not a race. So let me be as fair to Biden's spokesmouth and Congressman Liu as they are to me and the president. These people are defending an inhuman regime that enslaves three million people. These Democrat socialists support China stealing the freedoms of the people of Hong Kong and Democrats are already preparing to abandon Taiwan. Saki and Liu are big cheerleaders and defenders of China's forced abortions. Both of these leftists support China's racism toward black people. Oh, this is fun. Let's go on treating liberals like they treat us. Here's MSNBS star Chris Hayes. There are a record number of anti-transgender measures in state legislatures this year, at least 78 in 25 different states, many of them with strikingly similar language, using phrases like biological sex, biological males, sex listed on birth certificates, and the nearly 50 bills that would ban <laughs> so you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to even put it on the birth certificate now. I get it. Trans athletes from playing on team sports. And the first of those bans was just signed into law by Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves last week. It is set to become law on July 1st. I, I have been noting this that, you know, I, 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 the two bills oh my that gosh. Republican Look at the state hair. legislatures seem... Look at the hair. Look at the... Oh my... Where is his mother? Most intent on in the year 2021 seem to be... Targeting voting and, and restricting voting 
and targeting trans youth. These, it really does seem like those are like the central policy priorities happening in state legislatures. This is why Newsmax is so important. Why did Chris put his face up there? It's like, come on, Chris. Like, seriously, where is that guy's mother? I'm just saying, where is that guy's mother? Like, I would be right there dragging his butt. You remember that viral video where BLM was protesting and there was this guy protesting and his mom came out and beat the crap out of him. Why you be protesting? You're not oppressed, you know, all oppressed with his like Gucci and iPhones and she was beating him up. Do you guys remember that? That was so funny. That was super funny. But Chris put him on so people could see, you know, that's what's up. Folks, if only MSNBS were allowed to dispense their dribble. People would think that conservatives are trying to stop American citizens from voting and stop transgender kids from partaking in sports. Chris Hayes is unfair in his distortions of conservatives. So let me provide some balance and also dispense the same level of fairness to that liberal extremist known as Chris Hayes. The Republicans are trying to make sure that our elections live up to the American ideal of one citizen, one vote. Mr. Hayes opposes these efforts. So we can only conclude that Mr. Hayes supports cheating at the ballot box and for giving foreign nationals a vote in America. An odd play for a man who wet his pants for months over the Trump-Russia collusion that never happened. You mean the conspiracy theory? The conspiracy theory of Russia collusion. This is so bad. You know what? I actually want to find mom beats son protesting. We have to watch that. Like... This is this mom. There we go. It, you know, it was one mother. Mika, right? You know, Mika. You know, and um, Joe, cold case Joe, uh, had to talk about this. But that's what's up. That mom is so awesome. One mother listened. She was captured on video disciplining her son. Now, how many parents? can relate to that. I mean, it may not be in the middle of a riot, but if you got an older son or daughter, uh, you may be able to relate with that. She was actually, though, she, 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 she pulled her son off the street, got her away from there, and uh, doing what any good, strong mother would do, and God bless her for doing that. Hours later, she was praised uh, by Baltimore Police Commissioner Anthony Batts. Ding! That's what all the parents should be doing when they when they see their daughters beating up old white men peacefully holding a sign. That's what all the mothers should be doing when they see their daughters posting on TikTok how proud they are of an abortion. That's what all the mothers should be doing. Where are the mothers? Oh, that's right. That's right. They broke up the family units. I mean, too much love there to be able to hijack their minds. We can't have that happen. Here's another hijack that a lot of people haven't noticed, and um, and that's energy. So back in 2018, I was talking to you guys about 2018, 2019, about the moves that um, Secretary Pompeo and President Trump are discussing were, the possibility were doing in uh, the Mediterranean in regards to energy. And so here we have, uh, remember, I told you about the summit that they had uh, between Egypt, Greece, uh, Cyprus, and Israel, where they all sat down because of all that, you know, fake or fockery, right? Fock? 
I could say that fuckery, right? Um, where the UN was like, yeah, sure. You see this, this strip of water, they just gave it to Turkey because they're supposedly patrolling the waters for, 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 <laughs> for Libya. Right. And so they're, they want to drill because hey, the UN said that we're like the, the foster military for Libya. So because we are, uh, we're just going to like check for oil here, there, there, everywhere. And so these nations got together and they're going to be rerouting water pipelines through water, the Mediterranean. So, you know, what's funny is that we get a lot of these uh, eco movements, right? We can't have pipelines. They ruin the water, which they do if they leak. And boy, do people have to pay if that happens. But what about the Mediterranean? That is a source of fish and sustenance for many nations, right? For many nations on the African coast, European coast, and, and uh, Asia Minor coast, right? So you have to think to yourself, everyone's suddenly okay with building pipelines under the Mediterranean, mind you, where one of the biggest earthquake faults is like right here, okay? Earthquake faults. So I don't know, maybe they're going to use plastic tubing, you know, or rubber tubing to, to, to funnel all of this. But this is a massive earthquake zone, right? earthquake zone. This is where we have plates. But here we are discussing the piping of this. Now, don't get me wrong. Energy independence is very important. And when they built the pipeline across the top of Europe, going from Turkey through Greece and out toward uh, Western Europe, I was upset because, oh, this is like super earthquake, super earthquake. So what are we doing when they use the same tools of, of the Nord Streams? So this is a big deal. Take a listen to this report. Egypt are discussing the possibility of changing the route of Eastern Mediterranean gas pipeline in order to tackle the technical difficulties of the project as well as respond to the question of its economic viability. In January 2020, Cyprus, Greece, and Israel signed in Athens an agreement for the construction of the Eastern Mediterranean Pipeline, which is considered a project of common interest of energy infrastructure in Europe. It aims to transfer between 9 and 12 billion cubic meters a year from offshore gas to be pumped between Israel and Cyprus to Greece, and then on to Italy and other southeastern European countries. According to the Greek journal Tavima, Egypt's President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi presented to Greek Premier Kyriakos Mitsotakis an alternative idea. The pipeline would still start from Israel's Leviathan gas field, and instead of going to Cyprus through an offshore pipeline, it would head to Egypt by land, and then ascend to the island of Crete passing through the area of the demarcated Greek-Egyptian exclusive economic zone. Liquefied natural gas, LNG. Ships will then be able to transport the gas either to Alexandropolis or elsewhere, having Europe as a final destination. The changes in the project appear to be clearly at the expense of Cyprus, the division of the island giving opportunity to Turkey to advance its interests. Tavima reported that Nicosia has been cautious towards such a scenario, considering that it may be losing a bargaining leverage on the complex geopolitical chessboard of the eastern Mediterranean.
Now, this is very, very important. So, you know, Cyprus has, has is invaded and has been invaded uh, for almost 50 years now. The Turkish people invaded the island and they took control over half of it. And without having interest, foreign interests uh, within the Greek Cypriot side of Cyprus, uh, that could allow Turkey to just come in and just level out the place, just so you understand. Turkey has been annoyed by the East Mediterranean deal as Ankara has been excluded from the project's talks. Any project disregarding Turkey, who has the longest coastline in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Turkish Cypriots, who have equal rights over the natural resources of the island of Cyprus, cannot succeed. We bring this fact once more to the attention of the international community, Turkey's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said in January 2020. The discussion over the economic viability of Eastern Pipeline has taken center stage since the very beginning of the idea. After the signing of the deal between Israel, Greece, and Cyprus, an EU spokesperson told Euractiv.com that Brussels welcomes the idea, but noted that the pipeline should be seen as one option of tapping Eastern gas supplies for the EU alongside shipping it to the EU by tankers in the form of LNG. It's important to explore further the costs and benefits of both main options, the EU official said. The EU official added that the Commission has so far not signed up to the pipeline, but only to a study exploring further its feasibility. Nikos Tsefos is briefly analyzing this issue in his article titled, Can the East Med Pipeline Work? The Eastern Mediterranean gas pipeline provokes intense reactions. Its supporters consider it essential and transformative, a way to bring non-Russian gas into Southeast Europe and, thus, cement a geopolitical arc from Greece to Israel, while weakening Russia's gas hold on Europe. Its critics see it as a delusion, an unrealistic project, that cannot die soon enough. Meanwhile, the governments of Greece, Cyprus, and Israel continue to meet to try and advance this project. Can they succeed? The short answer, it is unlikely. But the so I want you guys to take a think. So for now, Turkey holds the keys to the kingdom for both um, Middle Eastern and Russian gas being sent over to Europe. And then Russia has it up north with their Nord Stream pipeline piped directly to Northern Europe, right? This is why President Trump keeps saying, uh, you know, hey, Germany, you're getting like 70% of your gas from Russia. So you have to think to yourself, if these nations are willing to undertake a task so massive as to divert energy from land, which is more stable, that should tell you a lot of what they know and you don't know. I want you to let that sit for a bit. If they are willing to pay an extraordinary amount of money take a very long time to build underwater in the Mediterranean pipelines in order to be able to funnel gas from the African continent, right, via Israel, right, and the Middle East via Israel, right, when they can go through land, what does that tell you? That's what you need to think about. If they're willing to do this, what is that telling you when it comes to Turkey and that side 
of land. I want you to think about that. What does that tell you? Hmm? Project is not totally hopeless, and it is important for the project's proponents and detractors to grasp why. The East Med pipeline was first proposed in 2012 due to two realities. First, a lot of gas had been found in Israel and Cyprus, this gas needed to go somewhere, and Southeast Europe was a logical outlet. Second, Southeast Europe was preparing to buy gas from Shah Deniz II in Azerbaijan, companies were looking at markets, governments were reviewing permits and signing agreements, and financiers were engaged with project sponsors. When Shah Deniz II shortlisted, and then selected, the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, TAP, as its preferred route, other pipelines, like the Italy-Greece interconnector, no longer had any gas to ship. The East Med Pipeline was an alternative for a market that was already in discussions to buy additional gas. In the Eastern Mediterranean, two changes have taken place. The first is that not much additional gas has been discovered in the intervening years, at least not in Israel and Cyprus, there have been discoveries made in Egypt. There have been only two discoveries since 2013, and both have been smaller than the earlier megafields, Karish in Israel, and Calypso in Cyprus, the latter without an official resource estimate yet. Exploration is ongoing, of course, and additional resources may be found, but those extra supplies are speculative at this point. Second, the existing discoveries have found an outlet in the immediate neighborhood, within Israel, Jordan, and Egypt. Analysts like to reference how much has been found in the eastern Mediterranean, but that gas is no longer looking for so as you could see, Turkey is proposing a new zone with Libya. So they're taking over Libya. Are you understanding this? This is why this is why General Haftar needs to get on it. So this is Turkey's economic zone. They've extended. They've they're the only ones proclaiming it and they're in there drilling and they don't care what anybody says. They're like come get us. Tell us to stop. <laughs> so they've taken over all of Cyprus and left Cyprus with their beaches. And this little portion over here. So disputed between Lebanon and Israel. This is land, water, maritime waters. This is Egypt, right? This is Turkey's, right? Pretty far in, huh? That's pretty wild. And this is all of Greece, but Turkey's decided it's taking it uh, because they want to. And uh, who's going to stop them? <laughs> That's basically the question. They're allowed to do it. Remember, I told you. The second largest military, so the first largest military of NATO is the United States. Second is Turkey. And third is Greece. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Well, I did know that, but I didn't know that that was that how that big they are. But that's because they're getting refortified by the United States in order to be able to counter Turkey. That's why, you know, proximity and all. But that's pretty insane, isn't it? They've just decided that they're taking a Turkey's proposed new zone with Libya. Okay a new export route, it has been contracted for sale. To fill a pipeline of 15 or 20 BCM, which is the latest capacity being discussed, gas would have to be aggregated across many fields, fields with different owners, and across different countries. It is not clear that either a gas producer from the region or a buyer from Europe is ready to take on this aggregator role, and without it, a pipeline is virtually impossible to cobble together as we know from other cases around the world. What could change this picture in favor of the East Med pipeline? First, additional gas discoveries could create a need for new evacuation routes. 
But there are two caveats to that statement. More gas could also boost the momentum for other export options, including an LNG export facility in Cyprus, and resources dispersed across different fields, and countries will still struggle to be commingled into a single gas stream that can be sold. In other words, more gas is probably necessary to underpin this pipeline, but more gas could also tip the scales toward other development options. Or I want you guys to think. So they're talking energy. We have these three countries that are working together, right? They're talking energy, working together. But all of them are part of the Paris Agreement where they're supposedly not doing gas and oil anymore. So if there's no gas and oil anymore, what are they doing? Why are they all getting together doing all this stuff? That's a question people should ask. Like, okay, um, no oil and gas. Okay. Well, then um, why are we doing all of this? Why are we piping all this stuff up? Why are we avoiding Turkey? Why are we crossing the Mediterranean? These are questions you should ask yourself while they're telling you about Green New Deals and moving away from energy and oil and this and that and, you know, putting themselves into pickles by putting in pipelines across the vast Mediterranean Sea, right, which is vital to sustenance and quite a challenge considering it's uh, it's got crazy fault lines you have to think to yourself why so let's just let that simmer for a bit just simmer for a bit and we'll revisit that in a couple months i dropped this now just for you to let it sit in the background so as the news come in with things like this you'll be like oh, wait a minute i remember seeing something about that okay because it's this is boom okay just remember that why are they doing all this? Why are they avoiding Turkey? And why are they so adamant of getting gas and, and you know, oil across to Europe underwater by fault lines if they're all going green? These are questions we should all ask ourselves. All questions we should all ask ourselves. Now, Let's move it along to the fall of the Roman Empire. Let's see what the going theme is as to why the Roman Empire had fallen. Hi there, my name is John Green. This is Crash Course World History, and today we're going to talk about the fall of Rome. Mr. Green, Mr. Green, Mr. Green, who, who's that pretty lady? That lady, me from the past, is Emperor Justinian. We'll get to him in a minute. How and when Rome fell remains the subject of considerable historical debate, but today I'm going to argue that Rome didn't really fall until the middle of the 15th century. But first, let me introduce you to the traditional view, barbarians at the gates. My, don't you look traditional. If you want to be really technical about it, the city of Rome was conquered by bar 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 barbarians in 476 CE. There was a last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustus, who ruled the empire for less than a year before being deposed and sent into exile by Odoacer, who was some kind of barbarian, we don't know for sure. Ostrogoth, Hun, Visigoth, Vandals, they all look the same to the Romans. Rome had been sacked by barbarians before, most notably by Alaric the Visigoth in 410. Is it Alaric or Alaric? The dictionary says Alaric, but the vampire diaries say Alaric, so I'm gonna go with Alaric. But anyway, after 476 CE, there was never again a Roman emperor 
in Rome. Then there's the hipper anti-imperialistic argument. That's nice, but if you really want to go full hipster, you should probably deny that you're being hipster, right? Exactly. Which goes like this. Rome was doomed to fall as soon as it spread outside of Italy because the further the territory is from the capital, the harder it is to govern. Thus imperialism itself sowed the seeds of destruction in Rome. This was the argument put forth by the Roman historian Tacitus, although he put it in the mouth of a British chieftain. That sounded dirty, but it's not. It's all about context here on Crash Course. To robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. They make a desert and call it peace. There are two ways to overcome this governance problem. First, you can rule with the proverbial topaz fist. That's not the proverb. Really, Stan? It's, it's an iron fist? But topaz is much harder than iron. Don't these people know their Mohs scale of mineral hardness? Regardless, the Romans couldn't do this because their whole identity was wrapped up in an idea of justice that precluded indiscriminate violence. The other strategy is to try to incorporate conquered people into the empire more fully, in Rome's case, to make them Romans. This worked really well in the early days of the Roman Republic and even at the beginning of the empire, but it eventually led to barbarians inside the gates. The decline of the Roman legions started long before Rome started getting sacked. It really began with the extremely bad decision to incorporate Germanic warriors into the Roman army. Rome had a long history of absorbing people from the empire's fringes into the polity, first by making them allies and then eventually by granting them full citizenship rights. But usually these foreign citizens had developed ties to Rome itself. They learned Latin, they bought into the whole idea of the aristocratic republic. By the 3rd and 4th century CE, though, the empire had been forced to allow the kind of riffraff into their army who didn't really care about the idea of Rome itself. They were only loyal to their commanders. And as you no doubt remember from the historical examples of Caesar, Pompey, Marius, contemporary Afghanistan, this is not a recipe for domestic bliss. So here was Rome stuck with a bunch of expensive and bloody wars against Germanic peoples who were really good at fighting, and then they had a great idea. Why not fight with these guys? So they essentially hired them, and soon the Roman legions were teeming with these mercenaries who were loyal mostly to gold, secondarily to their commanders, and not at all to Rome, which was a place that very few of them ever even saw. I mean, why would they even give a crap about the health and well-being of the Roman Empire? Am I allowed to say crap, Stan? Nice. This was, of course, a recipe for civil war, and that's exactly what happened with general after general after general declaring himself emperor of Rome. So there was very little stability in the West. For instance, between 235 and 284 CE, 41 different people were either emperor or claimed to be emperor. And after the year 200, many of the generals who were powerful enough to proclaim themselves emperors weren't even Roman. In fact, a lot of them didn't speak much Latin. Oddly enough, one of the best symbols of the new face of the Roman Empire was sartorial. Instead of the traditional tunic and toga of the gory days of the Senate, most of the new general emperors adopted that most practical and most barbaric of garments. Pants. Oh, which reminds me, it's time for the open letter. An open letter to pants. But first, let's see what's inside the secret compartment. Oh, look. It's Rosie the Riveter. And she's wearing... Pants! Dear Pants, although you eventually became a symbol of patriarchal oppression, in your early days you were worn by both men and women. And in the days of the Roman Republic, they hated you. They thought you were barbarous. They thought that people wearing you was the definition of people lacking civilization. They ventured north, and the wind blew up through their togas, and lo and behold, they adopted pants. And there's a history lesson in that pants, which is that when people have to choose between civilization and warm genitals, they choose warm genitals. Best wishes, John Green. And now a note from our sponsor. Today's episode of Crash Course is brought to you by the all-new Oldsmobile Byzantium, mixing power and luxury in a way that's never really... Oldsmobile isn't a company anymore?
and Byzantium is a place, are you sure? So remember when I said the Roman Empire survived till the 15th century? Well, that was the Eastern Roman Empire, commonly known as the Byzantine Empire, although not by the people who lived in it who identified themselves as Romans. So while the Western Roman Empire descended into chaos, the Eastern half of the empire had its capital in Byzantium, a city on the Bosphorus Strait that Constantine would later rename Constantinople thereby paving the way for They Might Be Giants' only mainstream hit. Constantine moved his headquarters, and thereby the headquarters of the Roman Empire, to Constantinople in 324 CE. Constantine had lots of reasons to move his capital east. For one thing, he was born in modern-day Croatia. Also, he probably spoke better Greek than Latin. And plus, the eastern provinces were a lot richer than the western provinces, and from a looting perspective, you just want to be closer to where the good warring is. The enemies in the east, like the Persian Parthians and the Persian Sasanians, were real empires, not just bands of warriors. And no matter who you were in world history, if you wanted to make a name for yourself in terms of war, you really needed to be up against the Persians, even if you were the Mongols. Not this time, friends. As the political center of the Roman Empire shifted east, Constantine also tried to reorient his new religion, Christianity, toward the east, holding the first church council in Nicaea in 325. The idea was to get all Christians to believe the same thing. That worked, but it did mark the beginning of the emperor having greater control over the church. That trend would, of course, later lead to tensions between the church centered in Constantinople and the one centered in Rome, but more on that in a bit. To give you a sense of how dramatic this shift was, by the 4th century CE, Constantinople's population had soared while Rome's had gone from 500,000 to 80,000. Remember, I've talked about this many, many times before. It is when they sought to weaponize Christianity. And, you know, my Catholics hate me when I say this, but it's true. Um, it was all Christian history, historical Christian, what the apostles said, and then the Romans came in and they wanted control of it because this is how they could create a saint on earth, which is the Pope. Apparently, the Pope is as holy as God. So, you know, the church in Constantinople said no. So that's what I was talking about. They took it and they weaponized religion. This is where it's wrong. And right now, the Orthodox Church hasn't weaponized Christianity. They've made it liberal completely. So Christianity, the way it was intended from day one of his resurrection, has completely changed. Everyone takes it and reshapes it in order to give power to those people that think they know best for us. And this is what happened with Rome. This is why I say Roman Catholics, right, need to understand that the Romans changed the face of Christianity. They all colluded together where the church split to the Orthodox, which means straight word, and to Roman Catholic, right? And both of them have completely crapped all over Christianity. And then we have other, you know, Christianity factions that came off after that. We have the the Protestants, Presbyterians, uh, you know, um, uh, there's so many. I just can't even Jehovah Witnesses. We could keep going and going and going and going uh, because everybody keeps revamping it to what makes sense to them rather than sticking to what it was at the core. And, and that's unfortunate. But this is what politics does. And when you politicize religion, oh boy, does it get ugly. I mean, look at Turkey. 
And although the Byzantines spoke Greek, not Latin, they considered themselves Romans. And if they did, we probably should too. Let's go to the thought bubble. There was a lot of continuity between the old Western Roman Empire and the new Eastern one. Politically, each was ruled by a single man. Sometimes there were two, and once there were four, but let's forget about that for now, who wielded absolute military power. War was pretty much constant as the Byzantines fought the Persian Sasanian Empire and then various Islamic empires. Trade and valuable agricultural land that yielded high taxes meant that the Byzantine Empire was, like the Western Roman Empire, exceptionally rich. Okay, I just want to say the guy said something wrong. He said Islamic empires. Islam wasn't around until like the 1400s, so let's just get that clear, okay? and it was slightly more compact as a territory than its predecessor and much more urban, containing, as it did, all of those once independent Greek city-states which made it easier to administer. Also, like their Western counterparts, the Byzantines enjoyed spectacle and sport. Chariot races in Constantinople were huge, with thousands turning out at the Hippodrome to cheer on their favorites. Big bets were placed, and there was a huge rivalry, not just about sports, but also about political affiliations between the two main teams, the Blues and the Greens. Thanks for putting us on the Greens, Don. Okay, I want to point something out. Someone was like, no, Islam became in the, began in the 500s. Actually, you know, again... History is written so differently. There were no Islam nations uh, back then. No Islam nations back then. I want to make that clear. Bubble. That rivalry was so heated that riots often broke out between them, and in one such riot, an estimated 30,000 people were killed. Thanks, Thought Bubble. But perhaps the most consistently Roman aspect of Byzantine society was that they followed Roman law. The Romans always prided themselves on being ruled by laws, not by men, and even though that wasn't actually the case after the 2nd century BCE, there's no question that the Eastern Roman Empire's codification of Roman laws was one of its great achievements. And much of the credit for that goes to the most famous Byzantine Byzantine Emperor, at least after Constantine, Justinian. I like your brooch, sir. In 533, Justinian published the Digest, an 800,000 word insertion of 1,528 Latin law books. And to go along with this, he published the Institutes, which was like a curriculum for the Roman law schools that existed all through the empire. Justinian, incidentally, was by far the most awesome of the Byzantine emperors. He was like the David Tennant of doctors. He was born a peasant somewhere in the Balkans and then rose to become emperor in 527. He ruled for almost 30 years, and in addition to codifying Roman law, he did a lot to restore the former glory of the Roman Empire. He took Carthage back, he even took Rome back from the Goths, although not for long. And he's responsible for the building of one of the great churches of all time, which is now a mosque, the Hagia Sophia, or Church of Saint Wisdom. So after one of those sporting riots destroyed the previous church, he built this, which with its soaring domes became a symbol for the wealth and opulence of his empire. The Romans were remarkable builders and engineers, and the Hagia Sophia is no exception. A dome its equal wouldn't be built for another 500 years. But you'd never mistake it for a Roman temple. It doesn't have the austerity or the emphasis on engineering that you see in, for instance, the Colosseum. And this building in many ways functions as a symbol for the ways in which the Eastern Roman Empire was both Roman and not. But maybe the most interesting thing that Justinian ever did was to be married to his controversial theater person of a wife, Theodora. Hey, Danica, can we get Theodora up here? Wow, that is perfect. It's funny how married couples always look like each other. Theodora began her career as an actress, dancer, and possible prostitute before becoming empress, and she may have saved her husband's rule by convincing him not to flee the city during riots between the Blues and the Greens. She also mentored a eunuch who went on to become a hugely important general. Mentoring a eunuch sounds like a euphemism, but it's not. And she fought to expand the rights of women in divorce and property ownership, and even had a law passed taking the bold stance that adulterous women should not be executed. 
So, okay. So I, let's, let's take a step back. So we had the Roman empire and the Greek empire. That's basically what the Byzantine empire was, right? Constant King Constantine and his wife and Theodora was pushing what she was pushing liberal ideologies that we should be able to break up families, uh, that, um, you know, there shouldn't be any units. This is what happened. And remember, they brought in all the barbarians because they opened up their borders. This is how all nations fall, right? The minute they embrace these insane ideas, it's over. And at that point, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> they look like nothing compared to what the empire of ancient Greece was after that point. So in short, the Byzantines continued the Roman legacy of empire and war and law for almost a thousand years after Romulus Augustus was driven out of Rome. The Byzantines may not have spoken Latin and few of their emperors came from Rome, but in most important ways, they were Romans, except one really important way. The Byzantines followed a different form of Christianity, the branch we now call Eastern or sometimes Greek Orthodox. How there came to be a split between the Catholic and Orthodox traditions is complicated. You might even call it Byzantine. What matters for us are the differences between the churches, the main doctrinal one being about the dating of Easter, and the main political one being about who rules whom. Did I get my whom right there, Stan? Yes! In the West, there was a pope, and in the East, there was a patriarch. The pope is the head of the Roman Catholic Church. He sort of serves as God's regent on earth, and he doesn't answer to any secular ruler. And ever since the fall of Rome, there has been a lot of tension in Western Europe between popes and kings over who should have the real power. But in the Orthodox Church, they didn't have that problem because the patriarch was always appointed by the emperor. So it was pretty clear who had control over the church, so much that they even had a word for it. Caesaropapism. Caesar over Pope. But so again, we had one where the Pope was over everybody, so he doesn't answer to anybody, hence why they have their own country at the Vatican. And then the other church that was still just immortal and uh, leaders would appoint them. You know, everybody just copped out. They weaponized religion, both sides, one of them a little bit more subtle than the other. Uh, <laughs> this is this is where it's going. This is where it's going. Faith is being attacked. Mm, it happened to Africa, too. That's what we're going to learn about today. And we're going to see how there's war, how the wars there happened. But the fact that in Rome there was no emperor after 476 meant there was no one to challenge the Pope, which would profoundly shape European history over the next, like, 1,200 years. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that in some important ways, the Roman Empire survived for a 1,000 years after it left Rome. But in some ways, it still survives today. It survives in our imagination when we think of this as East and this as West. It survives in football rivalries that have their roots in religious conflicts. And it survives in the Justinian Law Code, which continues to be the basis for much of civil law in Europe. Next Next week, we'll talk about the emergence of Islam over here. How'd I do, Stan? Well, you can't win them all. So that was a pretty interesting clip. Kind of showed how it fell. And it was all about controlling religion narratives, right, of the people. And this is what happened. And embracing extreme liberal ideologies. So before we get into... Um, a history of complex government in West African kingdoms and... Uh, learning about the Songhe Empire and the legend of Timbuktu and the Ghana Empire, I want us to take a brief, um, a brief history lesson in the Bronze Age Collapse, right? It's actually called the Bronze Age Collapse Before the Storm. It's 
it's a pretty cool, cool video um, slash audio. Giant. So I can't wait for you guys to see this. Uh, it's um, quite fascinating. Here we go. Um, like I said, it's called uh, the Bronze Age um, Collapse Before the Storm. Cities, thriving civilizations, literacy, art, trade, wonders, temples, and palaces. Then nothing but cinder and ash. The Bronze Age collapse is one of history's greatest mysteries. All along the crescent, from modern-day Egypt to Greece, there once existed spectacular ancient civilizations. Civilizations that had lasted thousands of years, that built wonders like the Great Pyramids and the Palace Complex at Knossos. Then, after just a few decades, all of it was reduced to rubble. Between the years of 1200 and 1150 BCE, archaeologists found city after city burned, leveled to the ground. After thousands of years of thriving growth and prosperity, almost every major Bronze Age civilization collapsed in less than the span of a single human lifetime. And what followed was perhaps the darkest age in history. International trade disappears. Pottery becomes primitive, a throwback to an earlier age. Construction of great monuments and temples ceases entirely. Centralized government vanishes. Certain skills and trades simply cease to be practiced. And perhaps most painful of all for us as students of history, the written word becomes almost extinct. In some areas, the ability to read and write appears to die out completely. In others, a few people desperately clung to the ancient art. That's what makes this period such a mystery. Because of the shrinking societies, the abandonment of cities and towns, the lack of royal decrees or record-keeping, and the decline in buildings constructed out of permanent material like stone, no one really actually knows why Bronze Age civilization collapsed. So this series will be an overview of this mystery, a discussion of everything that we do know, and then some conjecture. Let's start by setting the scene, and for that, you must first know the players. It's roughly 1200 BCE. A number of kingdoms, city-states, and proto-empires have sprung up in eastern North Africa, the Middle East, Anatolia, Greece, and the islands of the Aegean Sea. Starting from the south and working our way north, we first have Egypt. Egypt was the great power of the late Bronze Age world, with wealth and sophistication surpassing anything that the other empires could achieve. This is not to say that the other empires were poor. There's quite a lot of evidence that, at least materially, people in this age were better off basically than every other era until the Classical period. But Egypt was out there on top. Let's talk about their advantages. First off, the Nile. We may think of Egypt as a desert region today, but for most of ancient history, it was one of the most fertile places in the world. Why? Because the Nile is an incredibly predictable river. It floods regularly in a way that a society living off of irrigation can take enormous advantage of. And the flooding of the Nile didn't merely help irrigate the crops. It kept the soil rich and fertile, bringing in minerals and nutrients that sustained agriculture would usually deplete in any other environment. So Egypt had an abundance of food in a time when most of humanity spent the majority of its days simply trying to produce enough food to survive. This allowed Egypt to engage in long-distance commerce, create a strong military with a hereditary caste of warrior charioteers, and develop complex social and political mechanisms like a strong centralized bureaucracy and a highly developed religion. Not to mention build things like giant pyramids and sphinxes and sprawling temples. 
Egypt also benefited from the Nile as a highway. While the Nile cataracts forced merchants and travelers to switch boats or drag craft over land for a ways, the fact that almost all of Egyptian civilization existed along this river was a massive boon for communication, internal trade, even the movement of troops. Oh, and Egypt had one other thing. Gold. In the south, the conquered Nubian kingdom of Kush was an unimaginable source of gold. No other Bronze Age kingdom had access to this quantity of gold wealth. Golden artifacts from Egypt were prized around the ancient world. With this wealth, the Egyptians had expanded well past its modern-day borders. Egypt controlled, either directly or indirectly, much of the territory along the Mediterranean coast from Sinai to Anatolia, which of course put them into conflict with the Hittites. By the time of our story, the Hittites control most of Anatolia. They were a powerful militaristic society whose empire was built on the back of two economic advantages, tin and copper, the elements of bronze. Copper they had in abundance from mines on the island of Cyprus, the only truly major source of copper throughout the Near East. It became a staple of Hittite trade. And then there's tin. Tin is actually shockingly rare here on Earth. It's not like iron or even copper. It's a lot closer to uranium in scarcity. Moreover, it's not evenly distributed, so oddly enough, there was almost no tin to be found where Bronze Age civilizations cropped up. Recent archaeological evidence shows that the Hittites had some production facilities for tin at Kestel in the Taurus Mountains, which, if true, may well have been the only tin production in the entire region. But this source, coupled with the Hittite ability to import both from the east through the Assyrians and from the west via trade routes coming through Europe, meant that they could help sustain hunger for tin throughout the Bronze Age world. This also put them in the crosshairs of basically everybody, and they had to fight continuously to keep their trade routes open. They were one of the few powers that could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Egyptians, and, in fact, the oldest written peace treaty we have is from shortly before the collapse, in which these two superpowers agreed to stop trying to tear each other apart. Why the ceasefire, though? Well, perhaps because they were both feeling pressure from another empire, the Assyrians. Maybe because they were located further east, away from the coast, or perhaps due to some other combination of military prowess, political cohesion, and luck, the Assyrians would outlast these other empires for a hundred years before their own decline, meaning that they won't play too direct a role in our story. If anything, they serve as a foil, a counterbalance, an antagonizing force that'll keep the pressure on some of these other empires at a time where they can stand it the least. What the Assyrian Empire lacked was open trade ports on the Mediterranean coast, so they would be drawn to push westward, into the Hittite Empire and the Egyptian tributary states of the Levant, whenever they think these empires are too weak to resist them. Which leaves us with just one other people, the Mycenaeans. These were the Proto-Greeks. They ruled from most of southern Greece to the island of Crete. They were seafarers, instrumental in the vast trading network that extended throughout the Bronze Age world. They were also the industrial center for much of the ancient world, importing raw goods and then exporting finished products, built through a complex top-down system of industry. They were renowned for their Cyclopean fortifications and palaces which served as manufacturing centers, political hubs, and redoubts. They were masters of complex engineering and builders of great roads. They were also spectacular artists. Even the Egyptians would sometimes hire or emulate them. But they, like all the rest, would fall. Join us next time as we discuss the technology, social structure, and politics that make these societies possible, but might also set them up for collapse. Oh, <laughs> we know what the collapse is, is when they start to get liberal and tear at the very core of what 
created their societies in their first place, right? That's how it is. And you'll see that even with uh, the West African, where the Assyrians had come in and Muhammad, his message started to uh, go out West. You know, a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but the Muslims, right? Remember Spanish Inquisition, right? They had reached all the way up to Scotland. That's how far up they got. And so... Um, a very nice um, clip that I found for those of you that are watching, because, you know, people are visual, right? Uh, was um, the complex the invention of history of the government of West African kingdoms. Uh, this video itself I found intriguing because it had nice pictures, but the narration was really good. Even though there were a few things that were... Um, um, wrong. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was good. Oh, speaking of Africa, you know, every time I drop an article, the first, um, nation that pulls my articles, South Africa. So weird. Cause you know, now Interpol and the UN have their headquarters there. It's just so bizarre. The dark continent trope really ran its course when we consider how it affected our perception of Africa. The continent was unfortunately advertised through the eyes of the ignorant. African kingdoms weren't understood in its proper context, and so discovering its complexity was simply outside of the Western world's scope. Today, I wanted to shine a light on what we do know about the political and governmental structure of West African kingdoms. <laughs> What up, African world? It's Home Team here, and welcome back to another video of African history, culture, and worldview. By supporting this channel on Patreon, you're helping in the creation of these videos and supporting this content. If you'd like access to full courses and sources, or you simply want to show your support, you may do so by clicking the Patreon link in the description box below. To begin, this video is limited because its focus will be on African kingdoms of the 19th century. This is as far as most scholars go as it concerns comfort level, because we have much more tangible information from this time. This means that we have little information concerning how politics and governmental structures changed or evolved over time. But for the most part, the complex government of West African kingdoms during the 19th century certainly pulled from older models, and in general, governments naturally evolve over time for any nation or people. Also, throughout the video, You'll hear some references to slaves and even eunuchs, but it's important that we bury our 21st century understanding of a slave or eunuch and not apply it to these African kingdoms. The way these social categories functioned in West African society is oftentimes in stark contrast to how we understand the terms today. Many royal slaves or eunuchs in West African societies held considerable amounts of power, as you will see throughout this video. So please keep that in mind. This video takes largely from the research of Daryl Forde and Phyllis Cabery in their analysis of West African kingdoms. They provide great summaries concerning how certain West African kingdoms function politically that are extremely valuable for us in the diaspora. We will find that there was some cultural continuity between how West African kingdoms functioned. We'll also see its complexity, challenging previous beliefs on African statehood. The West African kingdoms will be highlighting are Benin, Ashanti, Maasai, Maradi, Oyo, and Kayur. 
Scholars have observed that like most places around the world, when West African kingdoms expanded, so too did its governmental structure and its politics. The system of distribution of power will be upset when new sources of power come into play via more enslaved people from wars, more tribute from conquest, and ultimately more land to control. Once these factors come in, then allocation of these new power sources must be administered, regulated, and distributed in a satisfactory manner. At times, office holders in West African kingdoms have small competitions once these new power sources arrive, and this causes small shifts in politics and structure. One of the most striking differences between some West African kingdoms seem to be based on the region they developed. The kingdoms in the northern savanna and those in the so-called forest zone differ considerably when it comes to the diversity of its citizens or the people they rule over. The savanna zone kingdoms were more diverse while the forest zone kingdoms were more homogenous. And so the savanna kingdoms mostly had a political system that was limited to who it was open to, and the so-called forest zone kingdoms were more open to different classes of people as it concerns political power. Also, the role of Islam in the savanna kingdoms played an important role as well. Sudanic Muslim powers would not share power with those of traditional African religion. Also, within the savanna kingdoms, trade and commerce with non-local Muslim populations actually could increase the power of a given ruler if they were allied with them, because his power could be reinforced by another power outside of local politics. The kingdoms further south did not necessarily have access to this. Anyway, let's see the brief breakdowns brilliantly put together by P.C. Lloyd concerning the complex political structure of Benin, Oyo, Maradi, Maasai, Bashanti, and Kair. In the kingdom of Benin, all freeborn belong to one of three palace associations and might rise to high political office in them. The leading chiefs were the king's closest advisors. Senior members who usually had achieved wealth independently of the palace might be appointed to town chieftaincies in an association headed by the Iase. These chiefs were seen as checking the power of the palace. The highest ranking chiefs were the Uzama, now of more ceremonial than political importance, they were hereditary chiefs of semi-independent communities on the edge of Benin City. Possibly, they were once descent group heads. Royals had no power, though one minor category of chieftaincy titles was bestowed on husbands of the king's daughters. In the kingdom of Oyo, the palace organization was recruited almost exclusively from slaves together with the king's wives and ne'er ineligible kin. This was countered by the Oyo Messi, a council of seven descent group heads representing not only their own groups, but indirectly the Mogaji and members of other groups in their respective quarters. The Ogboni continued as an association of free men in which the king and Oyo Messi had minor offices. In the kingdom of Maradi, the king was advised by a council of four paired chiefs, or Rukimi, the Kora, the army commander and a slave, with the Yandarka, a nominal slave, the Galadima, a eunuch, and the Derby, a descendant of an early ruler. Subordinate to the Rukimi were the largely hereditary and pagan district heads. Secure in office, the Rukimi were collectively much more powerful than the ruler. 
but each had his separate following. There was thus not only a contest of power between individual Rukimi, but also between the Rukimi and the king. In the kingdom of Mosai, the king was advised by four chiefs who came from non-royal descent groups, though their mode of appointment is unclear. Individually, these men were not only responsible for the administration of the palace, but were also the overlords of designated segments of the population, including the royals, some of whom were hereditary district heads. In the kingdom of Ashanti, in the late 17th century, Ashanti and dynastically related neighboring kingdoms were founded, in each the ruler being advised by a council of matrilineal descent group heads. But as Ashanti itself grew more powerful, controlling not only its neighbors, but further territories too, its rulers appointed chiefs responsible for the many specific administrative tasks in the expanding kingdom, these titles becoming hereditary in the male line. In the kingdom of Kayar, seven royal matrilineages competed for the Kayar throne. The power of the ruler derived from his kin, from women royals appointed overlords of certain villages, from an administrative cadre recruited from freeborn and slaves, but not royals, and from the palace slaves themselves. The freeborn peasants and even more so the caste of professionals and craftsmen and the domestic slaves lacked direct representation in government. These descriptions, though brief. So that's really important. So we're seeing that structure here now where uh, the kings or the queens, they uh, represent the slaves that are within their own home, staffers, workers, federal employees. I want to just do a simile here, right? And then the slaves, right? which are whoever they identify is reliant on them. But the craftsmen, the freeborn peasants, the workers, the people that contributed to the economy had no representation. See, history is funny like that. It tells you everything you need to know. Can you see it? Give us an idea about the complexity of West African kingdoms. Another interesting aspect of African statehood that can also be seen around the globe is the idea of special forces, armies or bodyguards who may or may not exhibit loyalty to the ruler. Sometimes a king actually had little direct control over any military force, being reliant on appointed officials to raise armies. Some cavalry units, for example, in the Savannah kingdoms could be subject to royal control or develop an entirely new identity and advance their own interests. Some kingdoms sought to deal with this complexity. In Marathi, the Maasai kingdoms in Oyo, the army commander-in-chief had to live at some distance from the capital so that he was excluded from much of the intriguing in and around the palace. This was likely done so that the commander could not be persuaded by any alternative political narrative or agenda, which could unravel the status quo. All in all, West African political systems and government were just as complex as anywhere else. This has been the case since ancient times as 19th century African government no doubt borrowed from an ancient model. Well, I'm all out, guys. If you like these videos and want to help in its continued production, consider supporting the home team on Patreon.com.
I support them. So the history of complex government, I just wanted you guys to hear the different um, uh, things that they talk about before we get into these little factions of the empires. The Songhai Empire is one of the most fast and furious. Here we are today, gone tomorrow, again, with changing policies. How they started changed. And so when you change something that's working, mm, usually backfires. So let's take let's take a listen to this. This is quite fascinating. Here we go. Hello, welcome to Biograd TV. If you're new here, please subscribe and turn on the notification so you don't miss our next video. History of the Songhai Empire. The Songhai Empire, better known as Songhai was a state that thrived in the Western Sahel in the 15th and 16th century. At its height, it was one of the largest states in African history. One of its greatest rulers, Soni Ali, established Gao as the capital of the empire. Other notable cities in the empire were Timbuktu and Jene. Initially, the Soni dynasty ruled the empire from 1464 to 1493 but it was later replaced by the Askia dynasty from 1493 to 1591. In the earliest times, there were many different groups of people that collectively formed the Songhai identity. Among the first people to dwell in the region of Gao were the Sorko people, who founded small settlements on the banks of Niger River. The Sorko made boats and canoes and fished from their boats and also provided waterborne transport for goods and people. Another group of people that settled in the area to live off of the Niger's resources were the Gao people. The Gao were hunters and experts at hunting river animals such as crocodile and hippopotamus. The Do people are another group that lived in the area. They were mostly farmers who grew crops in the fertile land bordering the river. Sometimes before the 10th century, these early settlers were conquered by more powerful horse-riding Songhai speakers who gained control over the area. All these groups of people with time began to speak the same language and they and the country was known as the Songhai. Soni Ali reigned over the Songhai Empire from 1464 to 1492 after the death of Suleiman Dama. In the late 1460s, he defeated many of the Songhai's neighboring states, including what was left of the Mali Empire. Soni Ali is regarded as the empire's most formidable military strategist and conqueror. During his reign, Songhai grew to a size of over 1,400,000 square kilometers. Timbuktu came under Soni Ali's control in 1468 after the Islamic leaders of the town requested his assistance in overthrowing raiding Tuaregs who had taken the city following the decline of Mali. However, Ali was resisted when he set his eyes on the wealthy and renowned trading town of Jenne. After an unrelenting seven-year siege, he was able to forcefully annex it into his vast empire in 1473, having starved its citizens to surrender. Muhammad Ture, who became known as Askia the Great, took over the throne of the Songhai Empire in about 1493, even though he had no right to be the king. Not only was he not of royal blood, 
he did not possess the sacred symbols which entitled one to become a ruler. But Askel managed to take the throne in spite of all these. He was one of the generals of Sony Ali and overthrew Ali's son, Sony Baru, to take the throne. He organized the territory. So that's a big deal. So culturally, it was always... Um it was always supposed to be uh, the bloodline. It was always supposed to be an empire. This was the first time in African history that a leader took over an empire without being a bloodline. This is huge, okay? This is where things changed a lot. Countries that Sony Ali had earlier conquered and extended his power as far to the south and east. The army of the Songhai Empire under the Askia Muhammad I possessed a full-time corps of warriors. Askia Muhammad I, although not as tactful as Ali in military strategy, he did find success in alliances. Because of these alliances, he was able to expand the empire greatly. Unlike Ali, however, he was a faithful Muslim. He opened religious schools, built mosques, and opened up his courts to scholars and poets from the entire Muslim world. He had his children educated in Islamic school and enforced Islamic practices. Yet he was quite tolerant of other religions and did not force Islam on his subjects. At the height of its glory, the Songhai city of Timbuktu became a flourishing cultural and commercial center. Arab, Italian, and Jewish merchants all traveled there for trade. A revival of Islamic scholarship also started at the university in Timbuktu. However, Timbuktu was but one of the numerous cities throughout the empire. By 1500, the Songhai Empire spanned over 1.4 million square kilometers. Economic trade flourished throughout the empire thanks to the standing army stationed in the provinces throughout the empire. Key to the regional economy were independent gold fields. The jeweler merchants would forge partnerships and the states would give protection to these merchants at the port cities of the Niger. It was a very organized trading kingdom known for its production of practical crafts as well as religious artifacts. The Songhai economy was organized and based on a clan system. The clan a person came from ultimately decided one's occupation. The most common were metal workers, fishermen, and carpenters. Lower caste participants were made up of mostly non-firm working immigrants who on some occasions were provided special privileges and held high positions in society. Did you guys hear that? So immigrants were the ones that weren't working and they were given special privileges and um, had higher positions in society. So from freedom, where they started to bang out and start to become, regardless of the religion taken on, um, that that leader of that empire had a religion. He created churches. He wanted everyone educated. They were trading. They were becoming, you know, a big empire. This is like the 1400s, right? Where, you know, <laughs> the Europeans were kind of still working on off with their head because the Pope said so. They had all these wars going on between them. Kings and queens, Game of Thrones. And here they are flourishing in Africa, flourishing. And so he picked a religion 
he put it out there and he had no problem with any other religion. No one was forced upon Islam. No, it, it was one of the only empires that was like, look, I believe this and my empire's core religion is this, but you could be whatever you want and it's all great. But things started to go downhill the minute uh, migrants came in and didn't want to work. They didn't want to contribute and they didn't want to embody the empire's culture. Can you see a repeat pattern here? That's what's happening. It's at the top of the hierarchy were noblemen and direct descendants of the original Songhai people, followed by freemen and traders. At the bottom were captives from war and slaves. Criminal justice in Songhai was mainly based on Islamic principles, especially during the rule of Askia Muhammad. The local Qadis were responsible for maintaining order by following Sharia laws. Qadis were positioned in important trading towns such as Timbuktu and Jene. The Qadi was chosen by the king and dealt with common law misdemeanors according to Sharia law. The Qadi also had the authority to grant a pardon or offer refuge. The Asara Munidios, or enforcers, worked like a present-day police commissioner whose sole duty was to execute sentences. Jurists were mainly made up of those representing the academic community. Professors were often given administrative positions within the empire, and many aspired to be Qadis. Sonny Ali laid out the framework of a system of government under the royal court, later to be expanded by Askia Muhammad, which selected governors and mayors to preside over local tributary states situated around the Niger Valley. Local chiefs were still given authority over their respective areas as long as they did not undermine Songhai policy. Under Askia Muhammad, the empire became more centralized. He encouraged learning in Timbuktu by giving its professors larger pensions as an incentive. The empire attained a great level of stability as a result of the sound policies of Muhammad and great attestations of this noted organization are recorded in the works of writers such as Leo Africanus and others. As Askia the Great grew older, so did his power decline. In 1528, his sons rebelled against him and declared Musa, one of his sons, king. But Musa's reign was short-lived and following his overthrow in 1531, Songhai's empire went into decline. Multiple attempts at governing the empire by Askia's sons and grandsons all worked to undermine the stability of the empire, leaving little hope for a return to the power it once held. A civil war of succession broke out after the death of Emperor Askia Daud, which weakened the empire, leading Sultan Ahmad I al-Mansur of Morocco to send an invasion force under the eunuch Judar Pasha. Judar Pasha was a Spaniard by birth but had been captured as an infant and educated at the royal court in Morocco. After marching across the Sahara Desert, Judah's forces plundered and raised the salt mines at Tagaza and moved on to Gao. At the 1591 Battle of Tondibi, when Emperor Askia Ishak II battled Judah, Songhai forces, despite having superior numbers, were scattered by a cattle stampede caused by the Saadi's gunpowder weapons.
Judah proceeded to plunder Gao, Timbuktu, and Jenne, effectively destroying the Songhai as a regional power. Governing so large an empire proved too much for the Moroccan Saadi dynasty, however, and they soon gave up control of the region, letting it fragment into dozens of smaller kingdoms. So as you see, stability was um, removed as, they, as more liberal as as they became more liberal slavery was allowed so the moroccans actually entered into the scene uh the minute that they were weakened to take control and this is how they had the sungai empire fall that's what happened that's 100 percent what happened and this is something that we're seeing uh happening here it hasn't changed everything is happening again it's it's just done in a more different way, I guess, in a 2021 way. This is how all the empires fall. It's from infighting and civil war. When you want to take down a nation, you don't sit there and, uh, you know, create policies that will strangulate them. There's no need for war in this day and age. All you need to do is simply create infighting. That helps everybody. Here's the legend of Timbuktu. Now, this is a, a, a cool uh, narrative of the legend of Timbuktu um, that you should see. Because these were massive, massive empires. And while the rest of uh, Europe and the world and Asia, they were fighting, destabilizing each other, uh, trying to take force. The Africans were getting groove on doing so much. So I want you to think of the United States being Africa and the rest of the world being Europe and Asia. And here is where you're going to see the same thing happen. And <laughs> it gets really interesting. I, I, you know, there's a lot of people that didn't know where Timbuktu is too, right? Because this is how slavery happened. When these nations started to collapse, the rulers that came in found them as secondary citizens. So their own leaders, their own chiefs of the tribes would sell them off at the Niger River. This is why Africans were demeaned as such. Because remember how the kingdom was rising and what happened? Immigrants came in that had no trades, right? Weren't participating at all. And what happened? They were given special privileges and put in special positions within the empire. So they were cultural this, politicians basically, right? They were guiding them. Hey, look, I come from France. Let me help you with the French. Oh, and I'm French too. Let's make a French division. That's what happened at the Songhai Empire. This is why they fell, because they allowed other people to infiltrate their government. And as they stood there, they brought in the academics, put them where? Right by the River Niger where they were selling slaves because it was okay, it was one of their best things. They gave them free health care. They gave them free everything. This is it. Infiltration versus invasion. You don't need to invade a nation, right? You need to infiltrate it. I'm only going to, um, I'm going to take you now to this um, clip here, uh, which talks uh, about the legend of Timbuktu. It's, it's incredible because Again, they were so strong. They were a force to be reckoned with. They weren't even messing around with their wars up there in Europe. They were still trading. 
right? And when they got their footing down, they came down and hammered them. And the one thing is, why is Africa so in the dark? Well, it's more so that the African continent itself refused to let the foreigners in. They learned their lessons from all these empires that have gone and come by allowing them to enter. This is why they were, you know, you want to call it racist, I guess you can, but they were a threat because they would see how many riches they would have and they would come in and take it over. That's it. All they needed was solid footing. And, you know, back in 2018 and 2019 in my show, I was drawing attention to the railroads that were being built from Europe to China and from China to Africa. That is a huge deal that they had that agreement going through Turkey. And the fact that Israel and Saudi Arabia, while we all like to see that they're getting along because, hey, whatever, you know, Israel's the only Jewish nation and it's surrounded by people that hate them, right? Apparently, they're all cutting deals and creating these railroads aside from the flights. They had railroads. They were trading. They were like, all right, you don't like me, but my money's good and my products is good, right? And that's what's up. So you have to look at the bigger picture. You have to stand back and look, wait a minute, were they really fighting? I mean, yeah, they were fighting because they're salty about all these titles, these, um, you know, things that get carried on from generation to generation, which is sometimes very hard for American citizens to understand because it's such a young nation. People can't understand the, blad, the, the, the bad blood between the Saudis and the Yemenis or, uh, you know, the uh, people of Oman and, you know, the people of, uh, you know, Yemen, the people of um, Egypt and the people of Jordan, the people of Greece and Turkey, they have thousands of years of history. We're going to go in there and solve their problems that are inherited from parent to parent. Don't talk to him. They're from this country. And you know what they did to our people back in the day? That's the way it is all over the African continent. These people have been around for eons and eons. We we, we can't go in there and fix shit. That's, that's impossible. That's like, you know, uh, what was it? Um... Romeo and Juliet type stuff. I think Shakespeare was making it clear. Let's not mess with old wars. It's just, it's not going to end well. And the thing is, the African continent is dark. Not now because they choose to, but because the enemy of those nations there that want to exploit them have decided, well, let's keep them in the dark. Yeah, let's do it. Let's just say, all right, fine. We won't, you know, come in there and help. But then maybe we'll just open up a supermarket. And while we're there with the supermarket, we'll ensure to gather all intelligence we can so we can understand them and data collect and give them all these benefits. So that way we know exactly how to strike. I mean, that's what en enemies do, right? They collect information before they strike. They don't just go in with swords charging documents about the history of this region show Arab historians knew it as the Balad al-Sudan, the land of the blacks. The empires of Ghana, Mali, Songhai, Timbuktu, and Gao became the first sub-Saharan people to accept Islam early as 850 AD. Commercial centers provided the first places of worship as traders began to have prayer areas in the towns. These centers of trade invariably became symbols of African civilization, showcasing an Islamic learning dynasty. The community was governed under the Islamic Sharia system 
and scholars begin gathering to share vast resources of knowledge. Al-Bakri, the Muslim geographer, provides an early account of ancient Ghana in his book, Roads and Kingdoms. He describes Ghana of 1068 as highly advanced. Al-Bakri writes, economically, it was a prosperous country. The king had employed Muslim interpreters and most of his ministers and treasurers were also Muslims. The Muslim ministers were learned enough to record events in Arabic and corresponded on behalf of the king with other rulers. He gives the following picture of Islam in Ghana during that time. The city of Ghana consists of two towns lying on a plain, one of which is inhabited by Muslims and is large, possessing 12 mosques, one of which is a congregational mosque for Friday prayers. Before we see the rest of this, I'm going to take you to a short skit about Ghana, the Ghanan Empire. It's like a two-minute clip that I want you to see because the Ghanans were very, very advanced for their time. I mean, you wouldn't even know, uh, you know, the things that they were capable of doing because um, you're not supposed to. <laughs> That's the way it goes. You're not allowed to have this knowledge. Stay away. So here you go. Two of Africa's greatest kingdoms grew up in West Africa, south of the Sahara, along the Niger River in the modern country of Mali. The first of these great trading empires was Ghana. It was founded around AD 300 by a people called the Soninka. They may have been the first West Africans to make iron. Their iron tools and weapons gave them an advantage over other groups in West Africa whom they conquered to create a strong state, the Kingdom of Ghana. The kings of Ghana built their power on the trade of two key products, gold and salt. Gold was the basis of currency in most parts of the world, and West Africa had lots of it. So Arab and Berber traders from North Africa were willing to risk crossing the Sahara to trade with West Africa. In turn, the West Africans needed salt, which came from mines in the desert. A thriving gold and salt trade developed. Ghana, at the center of the caravan routes, grew rich by taxing the traders and created a great empire. The traders brought more than just salt and other goods. They brought a new religion, Islam. The kings of Ghana welcomed Muslim traders, but they didn't adopt their religion. Instead, they allowed traders to establish their own Muslim trading towns. But around 1050, an extreme Muslim religious movement arose among the desert Arabs. Its followers, called Almoravids, waged war on all non-Muslims. In 1076, they swept into Ghana, capturing its capital and forcing the people of Ghana to convert to Islam or be killed. Almoravid control over Ghana lasted only about 10 years, but the empire never recovered. So what's the story there, guys? <laughs> what's the moral of the story there? The Ghanese, something people don't know, had, um, we're going to learn about the kingdom of 
Kush next week. But the 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 Ghanese actually had batteries, and you see that in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics where they're talking about batteries. They were actually extremely Christian. Uh, they let people. They were totally open to it. They're like, hey, if you're passing through our land, there's like tax. That's what's up. We're taking a piece of it if you're cutting through here, and you're more than welcome to trade with our people too. Here, come along. They were so advanced. They were so smart. They were in the middle of land. So they didn't have, obviously they had the Niger River, but they didn't have much access. They were geniuses and they collapsed really quick. Why? Because infiltration versus invasion. This is how you take down big, massive empires. This is a story again and again and again, happening again and again and again. West African griots tell the story of a woman named Buktu, who settled near the banks of the Niger early in the 11th century. She maintained a water well, which became a social center and stopping place for caravans of travelers. A village was formed, which was later named Timbuktu. A supreme judge named Sheikh Sidi Abu al-Barakat Mahmoud, who had visited Mecca and Cairo, ordered that a mosque be built. With the financial backing of a wealthy Mandekin woman, they designed a mosque featuring an inner court with the exact dimensions of the Kaaba in Mecca. It would become a leading center of education. Timbuktu had long been a destination or stop for merchants from the Middle East and North Africa. It wasn't long before ideas as well as merchandise began passing through the fabled city. Since most, if not all these traders were Muslim, the mosque would see visitors constantly. Temple accumulated a wealth of books from throughout the Muslim world, becoming not only a center of worship, but a center of learning. Books became more valuable than any other commodity in the city, and private libraries sprouted up in the homes of local scholars. In addition to books, Timbuktu accumulated navigational maps and logs from geographers throughout the world. During the 10th century, stories began to surface of sailors reaching a distant land. So I'm going to say something that's really going to cause stir, but well, we're going to get into that in a few weeks, and I want you to think about it. The navigation plans that we have on the way maps are aren't the way they are, right? We know this. So what was the distant land that they landed on? Because it definitely wasn't South America at first. Which one is the most closest to the North African horn? That's what you got to think about. One of the first accounts came from a 10th century historian named Ali al-Masudi, an accomplished geographer, philosopher, and natural scientist. He wrote a book called In the Meadows of Gold and Quarries of Jewels. In it, he tells the story of a young man from Spain named Kashkash ibn Said, who crossed the Atlantic Ocean made contact with people on the other side, and returned in the year 889 A.D. Al-Masudi wrote, Kashkash gathered a group of young men 
and went on a voyage on this ocean. He returned with a fabulous booty. Every Spaniard knew his story. By the 12th century, the world's best-known geographer, Muhammad Ali Drisi, was also telling stories of sailors crossing the Atlantic. Al-Idrisi had created the most accurate map of the world in pre-modern time. His book, The Delight of Him Who Desires to Journey Through the Climates, is a geographical encyclopedia containing detailed maps and information on European countries, Africa, and Asia. Book of Roger, which was drawn by Alidrisi in 1154 for King Roger II of Sicily, contained legends written in Arabic and was copied by geographers for three centuries without alteration. In his book, Alidrisi told stories of a Moorish ship which had crossed the Atlantic around 800 AD. He added validity to the reports recorded by other Muslim historians and geographers concerning Muslim seamen and navigators crossing the Atlantic Ocean. He also wrote about Portuguese seamen who crossed the Great Sea. A group of sailors traveled into the Sea of Darkness from Lisbon in order to discover what was in it and to what extent were its limits. They finally reached an island that had people who spoke Arabic. This astonishing historical report not only describes contact between Muslim seamen and the native people of the Americas, but suggests a strong familiarity between the two. By the 14th century, West Africa had seen the rise of the Mali Empire one of the largest in the world during that time. The king of Mali was Manza Abu Bakari, who was the nephew of the empire's founder, Sandiata Kita. As a young man, Abu Bakari heard stories of a land across the Atlantic and dreamed of sailing off into the massive ocean. While studying at Sankori University, Abu Bakari encountered maps from Muslim geographers such as Al-Masudi and Al-Idrisi, who had concluded that the Atlantic Ocean was not the western edge of the world. He learned about ocean currents, studied navigational charts, and also heard amazing tales of Sudanese people who had ventured across the Atlantic some 2,000 years earlier. Abu Bakari had been assured by learned professors and Arab geographers that new lands lay on the other side of the Great Green Ocean. Sometime around 1304, Abu Bakari assembled a fleet of ships and sent them west across the Atlantic in search of the new land. Accounts of the expedition are documented in a book by 14th century Arab historian Al-Umari. According to his writings, Mansa Abu Bakari launched 200 ships filled with men 
and a further 200 ships amply stocked with food, gold, and water to last for two years. African griots, who are known as the oral historians of African civilization, tell the story of one of those ships returning and informing Abu Bakari of their journey. The captain told him of their success in reaching a beautiful new land. Upon the news, the African ruler would gather a fleet of 2,000 ships, which he would lead himself. Ready were his best sailors, farmers, and carpenters, and in the year 1311, he would hand over the government and the title of Mansa to his brother Kankan Musa and fulfill his lifelong dream to sail across the Atlantic. People from what was then the Mali Empire uh, took off. It's almost certain they took off. The big debate is whether they arrived in the Americas. Uh, so there's a considerable agreement that they took off in order to cross uh, the Atlantic. Uh, and, and then there are elements of uh, sculpture, as you know, in Mexico, which has uh, so-called Negroid features. And we know the, the sculpture goes back 2,000 years. So obviously that sculpture must have, must have had models long before Christopher Columbus uh, crossed the ocean blue. Mansa Kankan Musa was the grandson of Sundiata Kida. After assuming the throne from his brother, he led Mali to become the largest and richest realm of Africa. Unlike Abu Bakari, Musa was interested in extending the borders of the empire to the east toward Cairo. He captured the neighboring kingdom of Songhai and its major city Timbuktu. Mali already had firm control of the trade routes to the southern lands of gold and the northern lands of salt. Musa brought a large part of the western Sudan within a single system of law and order. This was a big political success and made Mansa Musa one of the greatest statesmen in the history of Africa. So I thought it was important today just to dispel some things. You know, I tell you that, you know, the, the, everything is fake. I wanted to show it to you. Now there's, I'm trying to find other resources aside from things that I've read and seen. But apparently when they left Africa, right, from Timbuktu, they actually sailed south and they hit a very cold place. Uh, a lot of people died um, with that barrage of ships. Um, and they actually, there's a there's a myth uh, within uh, Timbuktu where they had skinned the dead to create blankets, right? Because it was that cold. And so they landed on this really cold place and they transported their boat to the other side because it was icy and they couldn't cross. And then they saw that, you know, they, they thought, okay, well, we're here. They were very good navigators. And they followed the North Star, as they say, the bright star. And they came up 
to South America. And as they went, they flourished within uh, all this land. Uh, many of them populated, they spread, and uh, only one ship ever came back, and it went by the way of Portugal. So they had gone up all the way to North America, right, to come back down. And not only that, some of them say that where the water meets and we're going to we're going to see this next week where the water meets it actually drifted part of the fleet you know uh to the east and it turns out that um that fleet had also landed on the cold shores but they ended up in some other place where the where there was red land where do we know that is australia so history is not the timeline they tell you it's not what is said i've said this many many times before that person those people that control the present control the pen that writes history and the brush that paints the future so as long as you arm yourself with knowledge, right, you're able to dispel things. And it's really important to understand how important Africa is to them or else why would, why would, think of this, Interpol and the UN shift their headquarters to the most southern tip of that continent. You have to think about that. So I thought over the weekend, a lot of us just kind of delve into uh, various videos and, you know, watch stuff. And I thought, you know, you could um, watch a couple things on Africa. Uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, obviously, every nation has its own story, right? And they like to tell it themselves, just like we like to tell ourselves. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. No, they just had a bigger pen, okay? Because there were people there way before that. I mean, we even have um, Plato's maps of the whole world, right? <laughs> From like forever and ago BC. So history has been repeating itself with um, new orders and resets. I want you to think about that because all of you, you know, are constantly realizing that everything that we know is being challenged. And I'm not just talking about today. And as long as you're able to, to accept that your past isn't what they say, that your history isn't what they say, then your present, you're able to make better discernment of what is happening, what is going, and what is to come. So on that note, I will see you guys on Sunday for movie night. God bless everyone. Coming in the air tonight Oh Lord And I've been waiting for this moment For all my life Oh Lord Can you feel it coming in the air tonight